That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. Welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Tom. Hello, everyone. Welcome back from your holiday, Tom. Did you have a nice time? I had a great time, Ben. And one thing I, I, I picked up on was that uh, it was everywhere across uh, the news. It's the fact that men seem to be thinking about the Roman Empire every day. Yes. Uh, and I, I was trying to work out when I was on holiday in Prague... I was thinking about the Roman Empire because it influences a history everywhere. And, and when I was looking at the history of Prague and Bohemia, surprise, surprise, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire at one point. It, 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 it does crop up everywhere. But Ben, you're ahead of your time. You're ahead of your time being such a fan of Rome or rather a fan of its decline and its fall. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't expect this to be a social media trend, but I would admit that I do think about it every seven seconds, which I think is the male average. Um, I think but, that uh, might be something else, but maybe, maybe. Oh, I got muddled up. <laughs> I got muddled up. Sorry. How embarrassing. But I, well, I'm glad you had a nice time because you've, you've spent quite a lot of the time uploading pictures um, of, um, of communist memorabilia and yes. uh, museums and so on. So I hope you had some levity as well as some... Uh, <laughs> I did. I, I went from the Museum of Communism to a museum on uh, Franz Kafka. I'm not sure whether that's from the frying pan and into the fire, given that... Um, <laughs> There was a tortured soul, if ever there were one. I did discover that Franz Kafka's The Trial, which is one of, obviously is one of his most famous books, in German is Der Prozess. Der, der Prozess. And I thought The Process is rather a better title in many ways than The Trial, because there never really is a trial. Maybe in a couple of scenes there is. The, the essence, the nightmarish essence of Franz Kafka's trial is um, the whole process, the bureaucracy. He doesn't know what's happened. What, what's he accused of? What's the sentence? Um, what's going to happen next? And I, 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 I really enjoyed thinking about that and um, spending time there, maybe even more than the, the communist uh, museum, because that was, that was it, it, it does come back to so much of what we deal with when we talk about free speech and we talk about what's happening in, in the woke world is that the bureaucracy is this hideous thing that, that, that is like a sledgehammer and um, people can't get through it to, to get good answers to questions or clear answers to questions or understand why is this happening in this way? And it's the bureaucracy. People hide behind it so much. Um, but nothing ever changes under the sun. No, uh, the number of conversations we have at the Free Speech Union, particularly in the case and legal teams with people who are being put through the process um, mm. without any, you know, any any, any promise of, of justice or common sense or reasonableness. Um, it sounds more menacing in German. Yeah, it does. Oh, <laughs> well, it's like the book. The book is particularly menacing at the end when K. You never know what his name is. It's a sort of an, an allusion, I think, to Kafka, but it isn't. It's Joseph K. Uh, is taken out, and the two men uh, who are going to going to kill him, uh, they eventually put a knife in him, 
and then he the last words of the book and i don't want to give it away but i am about to uh, trigger are, yeah. warning uh, it, it, the last words of the book are, are like a dog like a dog yeah. you just kind of put out of his misery at the end of this this process that he's gone through um, but hopefully we step in well before that we step in to help our members we step in to give them hope and we step in to, to equip them to uh, fight back uh, in these situations which they get caught up in. So we put a stop to the process. We do indeed. And, and we have some excellent news that readers of our newsletter will know already, which is that uh, Sybil Reese, one of our members who had been put through the process, uh, has uh, triumphed in her battle we spoke to was it two months ago tom it was over summer wasn't it it was over the summer i'm not sure it was that long ago um it feels it a long time but that's this time tricking yeah. us i think then yeah perhaps so um and so what had happened just in, in in brief summary was that she had tweeted some gender critical views and she'd been dropped by the uh, literary consultancy cornerstones that she worked for and the agency have now about a year later have offered a complete apology and vindication of Sybil so uh, that that's the end of the, the legal process and thank you if you donated to her crowdfunder it's made a big difference and complete triumph for Sybil which is great because we were speaking to her whenever it was over the summer uh, and she was still in the midst of this and going through all of this and had no idea what the outcome was going to be and so on um, so that's a really good result that we're we're very pleased to celebrate and we hope to have Sybil back on at some point because um, I thought she was she was a really great guest it was really interesting to talk to her both about her case and about some of the the broader issues in the literary world um, that writers and editors and literary agents and so on are contending with. Um, so, yeah, great result. And great to get the apology as well, isn't it, um, Ben, to have an organisation recognise that um, they, did, they didn't do the right thing uh, and didn't treat her in the right way. And the apology is quite comprehensive. Um, yeah. And I think that's something we often don't get we, you know, we, we obviously get people uh with positive outcomes but the organization often uh, you know either it's a settlement and we never we never hear we never hear about the details of settlement but in this instance to have had uh, an institution actually issue this apology it is very powerful and and it raises that question you know, as we as it were pan the camera back are other institutions watching are other literary parts of the literary world looking and saying, you know what, um, it is possible to get captured by a particular view. Uh, in this case, again, it was uh, gender-critical feminists getting persecuted. Um, effectively, you know, Sybil Ruth's gender-critical views being deemed beyond the pale um, by cornerstones. Well, one would hope that other literary corners of the of the world are looking and saying oops we better make sure we don't make the same mistake but as we know we have to be very very cautious um about whether whether that particular way of thinking will catch fire um because we keep getting a few sparks but we haven't yet got the kindling going it feels one of the things we were speaking to Sybil about was what is going on in libraries and the uh failure of librarians to stock gender critical books or to make them you know perhaps they might order one book in um whereas that compares to stacks and stacks and stacks of books by um trans rights activists and lgbtqia plus authors and so on and so there's a, there's a complete imbalance and the the public are not being well served um by this form of 
well, it is a form of censorship, isn't it? A particularly mm. um, stealthy, insidious form of censorship. And this was brought home by a story in Canada uh, last week, about five days ago, this was reported by CBC. Um, and there's this picture of a Canadian school library. Um, and the staff of the school library have removed every book prior to 2008. So just read a direct quote. This was sent by staff to uh, students and parents, I think. If the shelves look empty right now, it's because we have to remove all books published prior to 2008. And you can see this picture. Go and, go and look for it. Um, if you're listening to this now, go and, go and have a look so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and you can see the, the shelves absolutely stripped bare. Um, and this has been a process that has euphemistically been called weeding. And the CBC article says that libraries across Canada follow weeding plans to dispose of damaged, mouldy and outdated books. So, of course, that's a completely legitimate thing to do. If you've got, a, if you've got an old textbook that's been used since the 1960s and it's falling to bits um, and you buy a new copy of it or you replace it with a more up-to-date text, that's one thing. That's a completely legitimate thing for libraries to do. But, but, but removing every book published prior to 2008 on the basis that they are damaged, mouldy and outdated. It's just astonishing. And so it, they, they've sort of conflated the process of, um, uh, of ideologically vetting their collection with this process every year of getting rid of old, damaged books. So, so just so I get this right, Ben, this is a high school in Canada and yeah. every single book prior to 2008 has been removed from the library yeah. uh, that was published prior to that time. So, I mean, that is just very hard. It's mind-boggling to get your head around because this is the sort of thing that would have happened in Cambodia in yeah. 1974, around about that time, when they declared year zero. And they, they said that all knowledge and all, all things that happened up to this point, they don't matter anymore. Uh, all that matters is the ideology of this new Khmer Rouge government. Similarly, Kim Jong, Kim Jong Un in North Korea. All that matters is the ideology and the craziness of the cult of Kim in North Korea. Now yeah. we come to Canada, and in essence, they're saying all that matters is all ideologies that have come to the fore and are being discussed and argued about since 2008, which again is just as random a date as 1974 was, or as when yep. uh, Kim, the Kims started their dynasty after the Korean War. I mean, it's just difficult to believe. If I were a listener and, and, and I hadn't seen the picture yet, I, I wouldn't believe it that, that a school would do, a school of all places would do this. So, and I mean, I'd not been following this story and I wasn't aware of it until this CBC article came out five days ago on, uh, I think, the 13th of September, if you want to go and have a look at this for yourself. Um, and so the article explains there had been an equity-based book-weeding process implemented by the school board last spring in response to a directive from the Minister of Education. Um, and so it, that gives the impression that this is a process that will have taken place in other schools as well and might, in fact, be quite widespread. Um, and it, it is this year zero mentality. Idea. And so, yeah. it, you know, even very contemporary works, Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, all the rest of it, um, all of that kind of um, young adult fiction, that's all been chucked out as well. Um, it's so pernicious, it, it's, isn't it? 
Yeah, I'm brazen. It's it's brazen. It's pernicious. It's um, I mean, the more I look into these words, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and I bore myself the number of times I find that we talk about them, and in many ways we need to think of, of, of other other ways to to look at them. They are they're profoundly troubling ideas behind them, um, behind equity, behind that diversity, and behind inclusion. They resonate far too closely with a sort of neo-Marxist identitarian group think thing that we thought we'd, we'd, we'd swished away and squashed in the 20th century when this ideology, and I've heard Jordan Peterson say this, another great Canadian, uh, say that, you know, you may not think that the group think that goes on behind this leads directly to, you know, camps and the gulag. But actually, that's what the 20th century teaches us. It teaches us that if we look at ourselves and our societies merely through a group lens, uh, it leads ultimately to to the gulag and to the disappearance of people and, and, and individuals don't matter anymore. And this feels like, it feels five stages ahead from what I would expect it to be, that the removal of these these books in, 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 in a library. And uh, I don't know, are they going to bring them back after the press or is this it? This is going to be, this is it for now. Well, there's a campaign group that, I'm pleased to say is resisting this. Um, but one thing I think it's worth bearing in mind, I, I saw something that Matt Goodwin had posted on his Substack, and he publishes an article like this each year, and it's basically an introduction to the class of 18-year-old freshers who are now arriving at university for the first time. Um, and so I remember a few years ago just being astonished at the thought that there were undergraduates arriving who had not been born when 9-11 happened. So, what year were these ones born, Ben? Well, these ones were born, brace yourself, in 2004 <laughs> or 2005. So, so what are they, three? <laughs> so he, he says, there's no memory of Blair and Brown, of course, or the election of Obama. They were in primary school when Britain voted for Brexit and their formative years have been shaped by a succession of crises. Um, we all know the rest of that story. Um, but it, but it's worth just putting yourself in, into the mindset of, of this generation who, through no choice or fault of their own, have, have come of age at a period of time where technology is accelerating so incredibly quickly that the world before 2008, when these heretical books were, were, were still being published and stocked in libraries, it must just seem impossibly ancient. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> the, the strange thing about the millennials is that I was born in 91, um, so when I was born, the Soviet Union still existed. And I grew up in a house that basically didn't have an internet connection. And so our childhoods, Tom, although we're, you know, I don't want to say exactly how many years, but we're some years apart from each other. You're a little bit older <laughs> when you don't look it. Um, You're a youngster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a youngster. But, uh, but our, our, our upbringings and our experience of going to university and all these formative things were basically the same. Yeah. I mean, I had a mobile phone when I was 16 or 17 so you know the, the technology was there and i did have a social media profile from the age of about 17 again um but it but you did not have this omnipresent smartphone with you all the time and this constant immersion in the internet ecosystem and social media crazes and all the rest of it um although the one about the Roman Empire, obviously, I, I heartily approve of. Um, <laughs> it, I just, it, these articles that, that Matt Gooden does, I think, are really great because it, it just makes you think, okay, what would I be like if I had come of age 
at this period of time. And as I've said, you have to admit, I think, that everything before 2008 or thereabouts would just seem completely irrelevant to your life, which is a really unsettling thing to contemplate for those of us who still remember the world before smartphones. Well, Ben, I, I picked up on the same article from Matt Good, and I thought it was a very powerful question to ask at this time at the beginning of the academic year, the new, the new crop coming in, and also mentioning how their, their lives had been disrupted, obviously at a key point by, by COVID. It was crisis after crisis after crisis. They've had five or six prime ministers in just as many years, and, and um, they come with a completely different philosophy and they wouldn't look at uh, half-empty bookshelves uh, and and think, "Oh my goodness me, this is this is scary. This resonates with things of the 20th century." They'd think, "Well, the 20th century was a long time ago, and uh, if we're protecting trans students or we're protecting LGBTQ students, that has to be a good thing." And therefore, half-empty libraries. Um, go for it. Again, it's this thing in universities of free speech being a, a an untrusted phrase. Uh, free speech yeah. is looked at and frowned at and, oh, you mean you're right wing. That's what, that's yes. it's your short shorthand for saying that you don't like trans people or it's shorthand for saying you don't like this kind of person or that kind of person, um, which is, is how it's perceived. And, and the challenge is to, to work out how we turn the tide on that. We know leaderships in universities are, are not what they, they ought to be. And in fact, you know, we could, we could even expand the conversation more broadly into Canada generally as a sort of can, a canary in the mine, I think, when it comes to free speech. Because there's another thing going on in Canada whereby, now I mentioned Jordan Peterson already, but he's... he's he's at risk of losing his uh, license now. Um, and, you know, I, I'm only pretty much listening to his side of the story. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what, what there is on the other side to, to, to refer to. But, uh, and I should really do, do more, more analysis of that. But he's quite compelling in what he says about how his license is at risk of being taken by virtue of just a, a almost political... Um, observations he was making, and, and his point is it's the, it's the politicization of the professions. He's a psychologist, he's a professional psychologist with many, many years of experience. And as a result of some of the things he said about, about um, uh, Justin Trudeau and, and Canadian politics, complaints being raised outside Canada, so people who are not his clients, never were his clients, people who um, are not even based in Canada, are being listened to by the school or the uh, college of, of uh, psychologists uh, or psychotherapists in Canada and being taken seriously. And, and it is a politicization of uh, the professions uh, that's happening. And therefore, the workplace is no longer a safe place to be political if you're political in the wrong way. And, and, and Canada, for whatever reason, seems to have picked up this ball and run um, it raises the question: Why Canada? But that 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 is one one that's another discussion. But it is it is interesting to see how it's changed so rapidly. I think it's it's Canada and its smaller countries, and I'm not the first person I'm sure to put put this theory in circulation. But I, I think it's basically sort of cultural cringe. 
So Britain and Canada have a cultural cringe towards American politics and want to um, impress the imperial metropole. And I think you have the same thing in the British Isles, where the Celtic countries are much more woke even than Westminster. Um, mm. And partly that's because Scotland and Wales or, or their governments want to differentiate themselves from the, from the Conservatives. Um, but I also think it, it is a distinct, for, for some reason, it is a distinct small country phenomenon. So, mm. and ironically, it, you could see it in terms of needing to decolonize because we have completely accepted American cultural mores and cultural politics in Britain. Um, and that just filters on down. And so it, it, it's part, it's partly sort of, well, how to mm. explain it's partly this Anglosphere thing that we've talked about several times before. Um, and trying to be more like American progressives. And it's also reacting against conservative elements within our own society. Mm. So, Hence, you have this, the Scots and the Welsh governments um, behaving in the way that, that they do. I, so I think, that, I think that's what it is. In fact, I've just found a quote. Um, as I said, I'm not the first person to think of this, but there was a great article in Unheard um, which said that um, the, the sort of embrace of the politics of um, Black Lives Matter and decolonisation and so on by British academics is like Gaulish Audacian chieftains donning togas and trading clumsy Latin epithets to establish their identification with Rome. So it's that, it's that kind of thing. Mm. It's, mm. The, it's the same as, as the king of the Marcomanni in Bohemia uh, wearing Roman jewellery. It's the same thing. And it reminds me of what you said about um, the moment when the, the Western Empire fell. Many of the senators were Gauls, or many of the senators were Germanic at that point. The, 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 yeah. conquered, the conquered tribes were trying, as you say, to, to ape the imperial reality that had come and swept over their own countries in, by that time, centuries prior, and, yeah. and had wanted to, be, to, take their, to take their place in that new paradigm, that new order. But I, I, I think there's another element to it that Jordan Peterson draws out as well in, in, as he discusses what's happening to him in real time right now, which is this idea of uh, Canada being an early adopter of group rights. And I think that relates to what you're saying about small countries as well. Mm. So, you know, Wales and, and Scotland, again, very aware of being a minority group in a bigger country. For Canada, it's all about Quebec and, and Quebec trying to find its place to referenda, at least I think there have been on whether Quebec should secede from, from the Federation in Canada. Um, but that thinking around the group and the the rights of the, the the minorities in that country, which is great, you know, it comes from that initial place of yes, we need to protect the minority groups. Then becomes we need to look after all group rights and put them uh, ever and ever closer to the fore. And I think then you get these new new groups, new new identitarian politics comes in. So the the racialization of society, the LGBTQ elements of society, and these new groups come in, and you, mm. you, you've learned just one way to respond to that, which is to ensure that their rights are put forward. And in Canada as well, when the um, uh, transgender uh, recognition, and I don't know the exact name of the act they had in Canada, there was very little opposition, um, much less even 
than we've seen in the UK um, from the, the, the Conservatives. They're, they've essentially just waved it through because they realised it was politically not expedient to, to resist it at that point. So there are all sorts of reasons, and I think your small country theory is an interesting one, though um, we shall have to wa- watch Liechtenstein very closely. <laughs> 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 well, it's not Anglosphere. That, I think maybe that's the condition. You have, you have to be Anglosphere, post-Christian, right. and, and a small country. Those are the three factors that seem to predispose you to going terribly wake. So Liechtenstein can stand down. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe we should keep half an eye. But I, I th- the point about group rights is really interesting, because, Tom, as you know, but I think listeners may not, I've just completed a PhD looking at the experiences of ex-Muslims in Britain. So this is a theme to which I um, return to time and time again. Um, it's the way in which the British state in the 2000s, but uh, I think to the present day as well, uh, sadly, has interacted with communities. And politicians naturally now speak in the language of communities rather than individual um, subjects of the British crown or, or citizens, as it is now said. Um, and this is awful for all sorts of subgroups within those communities. I think it's awful for Muslim women, it's awful for uh, gay Muslims, for ex-Muslims and so on. Um, and you, you have this homogenization um, which takes place when the state interacts with self-appointed community leaders. Um, and these are problems that have been written about for, well, three decades now. So none of this is new, but it's still going on. And as you've said, it's been expanded through the protected characteristics of the Equality Act. So that you don't just have groups based on ethnic origin and or religion and communities of of that sort, but also um, gender and sex-based communities, Mm. uh, communities based around sexual proclivities and so on. Um, And there doesn't really seem to be an end in sight. I think this this process is so advanced. And I, I would argue that I think that is fundamentally incompatible with freedom of speech, which might seem like a bit of a stretch. But the reason for that is that freedom of speech is something that only really makes sense if you have a liberal democratic system, which is based and organised on individual rights. And once the individual rights part of that is supplanted by community rights, the onus then is not on allowing you, Tom Harris, to speak your mind. The onus Mm. is on protecting the peace between different community groups. And the last thing you want, actually, is... Uh, extreme Hindus or Islamists raging against the other community and kicking off events like like we saw in Leicester, for instance. And so the interest of the state stops being in protecting the rights of individuals and it it starts being to police community tension. And that's what's happening. And I think think what's interesting about that, Ben, is that idea of us living in... And we talked about Pax Britannica and then the the need to maintain Pax Britannica. What that then means is the next step is that free speech means different things within different groups. So within um, my world, I can say pretty much what I like uh, from a sexuality point of view because I am surrounded by people in the LGBTQ uh, um, community, and I, you know, I can say things that 30 years ago would have been deemed absolutely beyond the pale. However, if I took that way of talking, that way of speaking, those conversations, and, and dropped them into an Islamic community in the north of England, uh, I would probably be run out of town quite quickly. And so, free speech 
in one community is very different to free speech in another community because, as you say, the priority isn't free speech, is keeping the Pax Britannica between these different groups, and the different groups have different speech priorities, certainly, and different moral priorities and moral codes. Uh, and so free speech is has to be diametrically opposed. And, and something else that um, worried me that I saw in the last week significantly worried me is the ex-Prime Minister Theresa May was being, was being interviewed and, 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 and asked the question, you know, are you woke? And, and Theresa May said, yes, I'm, I'm proud, happy and woke. There's this very thin understanding right at the top amongst our elites, very wafer-thin understanding of what that word and how rapidly that word has evolved <clears throat> to this new reality that you're talking about, this new reality of well, actually, all of our institutions are about keeping Pax Britannica and not about free speech. And, that, and, and woke is kind of a coping mechanism to make that happen. And then for, 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 for prime ministers, ex-prime ministers, stand up and say, yes, I'm, I'm woke and proud. Just, you know, I, I, when I'm in a charitable mood, I think, well, that's just the old version of woke, the old version being awake to an injustice. Great, fine. But this new version of woke, our, our elites uh, are just totally, it seems, unaware of, of what it really means on the ground. There's this weird thing that happens to former conservative <laughs> leaders, both in America and Britain, where they are absolutely hated and reviled and they're the most dangerous political leader of their generation and they're a demagogue and a populist and they're ripping down the Constitution and all the rest of it. And then once they've left office for about five years... You know, like, like George Bush is a great example of this, where he's he's just seen as this kind of, you know, harmless, likable chap who's just left doing his paintings. And now Theresa May is great because she's kicking it to Boris Johnson and so on. And there's this bizarre process by by which conservatives are, are, are ousted or resign. Um, and and then they they become these sort of liberal pinups. It's really weird. I mean, it's not a free speech point. It's just it's such a strange phenomenon. Um, and so Theresa May it obviously is. is going down that path as well. I mean, it's a path I suspect is very much not open to Boris Johnson or Liz Truss. Um, but but it's very peculiar that it does happen to some some conservatives who are sort of embraced by by the liberal establishment after they've left office. It's very weird. But the other thing I saw she said was this um, that there needs to be a more sensitive approach to gender issues. And I thought, how much more sensitive can we get? Well, I mean, we've already gone through a process of best part of a decade where you can't talk about any of these things at all. And if you do, you're going to be sacked and monstered. Um, you can't possibly question the idea that a man wearing lipstick and a dress has become a woman. You can't question any of these shibboleths. If you complain about what your children are being taught in school, you're a bigot and you're on the far right. How much more sensitive does she want us to be? Mm. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I... I think there's this misdirection constantly of, of sensitivity. And, and I would say that there is a group of vulnerable people in society, uh, the small number of people who are truly living their lives as transgender people are at risk of being um, you know, pulled aside if they walk down a street um, and, and, and mugged or beaten up or worse. That, that is a real risk if you're in you know, certain parts of, the, yeah. of town at the, you know, the wrong, wrong time of day. And there, with, there will be a fear if you're brave enough to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to, although I'm a six foot two, two man, um, 
biologically, I'm going to live my life and present myself as a woman. And, and it takes some courage to do that and to mean it. And it puts you at risk. And I can see that, I, of course. And I think you can as well. But I think we can all see that, that there are that original definition of woke, of being awake to injustice and, and live and let live. You know, if someone wants to live their lives in a particular way, then go for it. And, and come round for tea and cake whenever you want. You know, do, do, do it. But um, you're right. It's this sensitivity to the activists that's now required. It's this sensitivity to the people who are the be kind crew, where they mean exactly the opposite. They turn up in balaclavas. They, they, they turn up and they intimidate. And I'm not going to be sensitive to those people. I'm going to stand up for what I think. You know, again, it goes back to... <laughs> gone back to Jordan Peterson three times, Ben, in this in this recording so far. Um, I, he, he is a bit of a hero of mine. But originally, his point was, um, don't compel me to, to speak in a particular way. That is what I'm making, taking a stand on. The, the, the law in Canada is compelling me to use a form of words, and I will not have it. And they said, oh, you don't like trans people. You don't. He said, I haven't said that. I, and on a one-to-one -one yep. basis, I will take a judgment uh, as and when, what the situation demands. Of course, of course I'll be, be reasonable and polite. I'm not a monster. But I will not have the state insist on what I say, how I say it, and that's abominable. Um, and, and so, again, yeah, I think <laughs> it's, just, it's just crazy, as you say, about being sensitive. It's totally misdirected sentiment i think uh the way it, the way it works out nowadays i think the point you made a moment ago i completely agree with and, and lots of, of when politicians say these things that sound very cuddly um speaking to other other sort of centrist former politicians or whatever um it seems to proceed from the assumption that the british public are fundamentally in need of education and that they need to be more tolerant and more inclusive and more sympathetic and sensitive because actually, I think all the evidence that I've ever seen shows that the British public overwhelmingly would, overwhelmingly would agree with the, the sentiments you've just expressed of, of, of course, trans people, nobody should be subject to harassment on the street, much less physical violence. No, there's, there's no body of opinion that, that disputes that. Um, mm. The issue arises when the claim of a transgender individual to be a woman persists to the point that that claim is prioritised above the rights of women and girls. And of course, you know, that, that's the convulsion, that's the issue that society has now been um, browbeaten into finally discussing um, over, over the last five years or so. But it does seem to proceed from this strange assumption, I think, that the British public are intolerant. And I, I don't think we are, actually. Ben, I, th I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'll go back to my holiday. I was on holiday for a week uh, in the Czech Republic. Wonderful, wonderful place, wonderful people, wonderful hospitality, lots of amazing things to look at. Uh, Travelling around, taking a train here, doing this, there, and, and whatever. Got Jumped on a plane. Very squashed, by the way. I was in the last row and, and, and uh, nearly nearly thought, got very claustrophobic. I don't know what's You're happening. You're a six-foot-two man, Tom. That's, that's your problem. Six-foot-two man, <laughs> and I'm sure they're making that's those gaps yeah. smaller. Yeah, I feel Anyhow, la landed at Heathrow and uh, pootled off, 
happily sort of stretching out a little bit, unfolded <laughs> myself and making my way towards passport control. And immediately the uh, public notice announced, the public announcements uh, started with our staff deserve to be treated with respect. We will not tolerate anyone abusing our staff. Yet straight within two minutes, the assumption yeah. was that yeah. I was in some way needed to be trained. I needed like, I was like a dog. I need to be trained now. I'm, I'm a child who doesn't know how to act in public. Having come from a week free of this, it was so noticeable to see as soon as I landed in Heathrow, I now needed to treat everyone with respect because obviously I couldn't be trusted to do that myself. And it filled me with a great sense of, I nearly wanted to jump back on the, the plane, probably a business class this time but <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it's everywhere it's in every form we, we 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 are seeing this infantilization and we're seeing this distrust of the british people who are yeah. genuinely the most welcoming people we we really are I, I think and we we proved that again and again and again and yet we are not trusted to be yeah couldn't agree more well have we veered off free speech? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're still. I think we're still in the free speech sea. Maybe not in the pond. Maybe in the free speech sea. Um, slight digression. That's but, fine. Yeah, we, but you, you have a topic you want to talk about, don't you? Which is this alumni for free speech research um, on uh, yes, diversity. Yes, and, and this is quite an exciting um, uh, piece for us to talk about because there's some really interesting data. It reminded me a little bit of that piece of data, piece of work that Carrie did on the urgent need to educate the police on the importance of free speech. What um, the organization called Alumni for Free Speech have done is they've, they've put in a lot of freedom of information requests. I think they put in uh, over 50 universities. So they, they went to uh, universities around the country with freedom of information requests, asking them, how many staff they have who uh, are EDI trainers, equity, diversity, inclusion trainers, um, how much they spend on equity, diversity, and inclusion staff and, 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 and uh, the infrastructure around EDI, how much they spend on external uh, support and training for EDI, and then exactly the same questions for freedom of speech. And my goodness me, this is an interesting outcome. Um, three guesses what, what the outcome is. I mean, in, in essence, they're, they're, if you sum up the total amount that's being spent on um, EDI and divide by the total amount that's being spelt, spent on freedom of speech, you get a factor of 214. And that is... That means that, in essence, 214 more, um, times more money is being spent on EDI in our universities than is on freedom of speech. And the, the analysis is really good because every comment I was looking through would be exactly the sort of comment I would expect an actuary to draw out. So their, their data analysis, I, I would say, is, is right up there. And, and why do I say that? I think because they recognize the, the weakness of the data, because there's a lot of um, universities who didn't come back uh, with full answers. They may well have underestimated the certain amounts that were being spent 
or, or they came back and, and adjusted their data a little later. So there's a lot of good commentary around, around the weaknesses of the data that, 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 that they're dealing with. But having said that, I agree with them that what this says is that far, far too, that, you know, the, the relativity of EDI against freedom of speech, especially after we now have the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act in force, it, you know, they say it really does seem there's, there's not even, even lip service being, being um, given to this, these new legal freedom of speech requirements in universities, and that they've really very rapidly got to sort this out and dislocate themselves from these third-party trainers in the EDI world. Um, but this is, what's great about this is it's real data that shows the situation. Mm. Um, and they, they, they hesitate to draw out too many um, individual universities because of the data weaknesses. But at the top of the list are, are I think it's something like 57 um, uh, D, uh, one, two universities had 57 staff members uh, responsible for EDI. I mean, it's absolutely uh, astonishing. And uh, in terms of external EDI training, uh, there was a total of 1.6 million being spent uh, across uh, the 50 or so, or, or the, it's something in the 40s because they didn't all respond. Uh, 856,000 of that was in Glasgow. So, you know, what I, what I found striking was how skewed the data was, but I should absolutely make it clear that uh, the data was being answered in different ways by different institutions. So making comparisons and relatives, certainly you can't rank universities based on that. But yeah, 57 staff members were in Sheffield and Southampton uh, in terms of the EDI staff that they had. And only two universities spent anything in, with regard to their um, answers that they gave, spent anything on freedom of speech. Those two universities were the LSE uh, and also it looks like it was Chichester as well. So yeah, it was, it was, it's astonishing uh, to see uh, how little is being spent on freedom of speech and how much is being spent on this new industry, EDI, and how entangled uh, that spending is in turn on uh, third parties that we've spoken about before, third parties who are politicized. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do, Ben, I think, uh, on these institutions. Not, it's not, um, it's not new news, but it's fantastic to just see this disparity, to see this asymmetry in black and white. And for any interested listeners, we'll put a, a link in the show notes for today's episodes so you can go and have a look at the actual data. And anyone who's, who, who's that way inclined um, will be able to, to see these numbers in, in stark contrast, see how skewed they are. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was uh, something we wanted to, to bring to our listeners' attention. I wish there was some way of capturing how much of this is because EDI is a massive liability for universities because of the Equality Act and so on, and how much of it is because this is what senior management and the heads of departments and so on really believe. And I, I, think, I think certainly the, the preponderance do believe in EDI and a committed minority seem to believe in mm. the equity mutation of EDI. And there's no sense in which there's a liability associated with freedom of speech, Ben. That, that's what really comes through. So well, there ought that, to be, but there isn't. Yeah, there ought to be. And now, now that the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act is in place, perhaps we'll see, if this exercise were repeated in a year or two, perhaps the figures would 
I mean, I, I don't see that they'd completely rebalance. I think that's unrealistic. But perhaps, perhaps there would be some evidence that universities were paying a substantially increased amount of attention to their freedom of speech liability, um, which, as you say, they ought to be doing. I'm glad you mentioned Sheffield, incidentally, because we had a case that was reported in The Telegraph in August last year of a diversity advisor who was basically forced out of his job um, after he'd signed a statement of solidarity with Professor Kathleen Stock. And one of the most extraordinary details about this case was that he was complained about by a trade union. So the trade union that should have been representing the employees of Sheffield University instead conspired to force him out of his job um, and get him reassigned. And he'd complained about this internally. And uh, you can read the, the full detail of this in the Telegraph. But it was interesting. Was it 57 at Sheffield, you said, I, I think, a moment ago? Um, and so within that, it, it's not just that equality, diversity, inclusion are, are being pushed across the board. It, it is a very particular approach to EDI. And so he tried to um, say that there's a, there's a different course here. There's a reasonable way of, of promoting inclusiveness. It doesn't have to be politically loaded. It doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't have to take this very contentious line. There is a way to do this that, that will command free majority support that, that people accept. Because as we were just saying, the British public actually are naturally inclusive and tolerant. I think. Um, What's interesting there, Ben? I mean, you mentioned trade union or trade union, and we haven't talked about trade unions that much. Uh, over our various episodes, uh, we, we've talked about student unions, we've talked about universities, and we talked about the corporate world. We haven't really talked about trade unions, but it is something we see in our casework as a theme, which is that the trade unions really are not interested, it seems, in supporting people who fall foul of EDI because they themselves have been captured or have their own EDI policies and such, like whereby whereby they'd say, no, we can't, we can't represent you on this because you're taking the wrong side of the, the issue. And again, yet another form of what should be protection for people with a trade um, is, is, has fallen by the wayside. And there, there are only a few trade unions that we, would, that we would point people to, and it's a dwindling number of trade unions to which we would point people to uh, for additional support. Uh, the, the, so many of them seem to have been captured and have fallen into our casework. I mean, I don't know what you feel about that, Ben. Yeah, very much so. And this is, I mean, it's particularly bad in academia, I think, but it, but it is across the board that if you, if you have the wrong set of views, your trade union rep will not look very kindly on your case. And yeah. you, you will find that you, you just don't have trade union representation. Uh, but I, I think the, the, the case of the advisor at Sheffield was even worse than that because it wasn't that they were declining to assist it was that the members of the trade union had organized to get this advisor removed from his job and reassigned because of his it must be said pretty moderate and modest views um yeah yeah, yeah. The, is there anything we want to say on that tom um, well just to say i i would again i will make sure the link gets into the into the show notes because uh i think it's a fantastic piece of work that the uh, that the alumni for free speech have done and it, it resonates so closely with what we've done in the police. 
Uh, and it would be good to see it in a year or two, I think, and see if it's changed at all. But it just in stark, in it's absolutely stark, the size of the issue that we have and the size of the problem that we have. Um, and the journey, I mean, the journey we're going to have to go on to get freedom of speech on the agenda and in the budgets as well. I mean, I'm sure EDI is in the budgets. It should, you know, it, sh it should be given those amounts of money. But freedom of speech, I mean, it, if you look down the list, it's null, null, zero, 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 null, null, uh, can't, cannot answer, zero, zero. And that is, is it can only get better. <laughs> Famous last words. No, so no. Uh, other than that, there's nothing else I wanted to add, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just give a final. I'll use the opportunity of talking about um, freedom of speech in universities and budgets just to give a plug for the McTaggart program, which the Free Speech mm. Union runs to give funding pots to uh, students or student societies or academics who are doing something student facing that promotes free expression or freedom of speech. So it's very broadly defined. Um, we have recipients of. Uh, grants who are uh, speakeasy societies from the new speakeasy network or debating societies, uh, feminist groups, uh, individual students to help them run film screenings or produce films or whatever. It's a, it's a broad range of activities. So if you're listening to this in despairing, there are lots of students who are very much on society, who really do get the issues that listeners of this podcast are concerned about. Um, so a slightly positive note, um, just to yeah. keep <laughs> so that you don't have your head in your hands listening to this um but we do have some other good things we, we've got a couple of events coming up that are worth talking about haven't we um that's right that's well right. First, first of all yeah battle of ideas later in i was about to say this month is not it's in october there is a 20 percent discount for fsu members and if you go to our last weekly newsletter you can get some details on that and on the 3rd of october professor jeremy jennings will be giving a lecture on uh, understanding tyranny and liberty uh, on js mill and de tocqueville as well with uh, q a afterwards and toby young our boss in the chair uh, so that's on the 3rd of October at 7.30pm in London. And also, if you're, if you're not based in London, as indeed I am not, and you're out in the provinces in the depths of rural England, Scotland, or Wales, or elsewhere, uh, you can join to register uh, free of charge, and you can follow the event on Zoom as well. So you have not been forgotten. Fantastic. And I think that's everything I wanted to say, except thank you for listening. And... Um, over to you, Tom. If there's any final thoughts, no, nothing, nothing from me. I think, I think we've covered it. I just, as I say, I, would, I don't want. To, what do they say at the end of Crime Watch? They say, um, yeah, "Don't have nightmares." That's what they used to say after going after going through all of these items, <laughs> <laughs> these hideous crimes that had happened. You know, I mean, in many ways, that's what that's what we do each week, isn't it? We go through the sort of free speech crimes of the week, uh, and maybe we should have an equivalent sort of sign off along the lines of "Do sleep well and don't have nightmares." <laughs> <laughs> but we do, as always, we, we we wish our listeners well, and and we're here to help if if there are any uh, free speech uh, problems that any of our listeners come face individually. So. Uh, you know, we're hopefully doing our part, but no, nothing else from me. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, goodbye. Goodbye for now.